This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Kyle Colbertson. I am the pastoral intern here at Trinity. Um, and it is a blessing to be able to come this morning and continue on our study on the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And so we've walked through, if you've been with us the last three or four weeks, we've gotten to this point in this letter where Paul has gone from giving a beautiful picture of what the gospel is at the beginning into more practicality of what that looks like in our lives and entering into the last couple weeks and into this third week, almost a little mini sermon series of application within a household at Ephesus. And so the last... So two weeks ago, we talked about what that looks like of living as imitators of God that are submitting to one another, filled with the Holy Spirit, what it looks like for marriage and wives and husbands. Then last week, we talked about what that looks like in parenting with child and parent. And then this week, it gets to a relationship at Ephesus that we don't necessarily have in our households, but it is slave and master. Um, and as we jump into chapter 6 and we see this relationship, I didn't want to gloss over what that is. It will be labeled as bondservant, um, which is probably the best translation of that word in this context. Um, and while this morning we're going to look at it as employees and employers, I didn't want to gloss over the fact that you guys are smart enough to read your footnotes and know that that word is slave. And so speaking of slavery, while we don't have a full time to address the entire topic and how it is addressed in the Bible. I wanted to give a, a little brief bit at the beginning about what this looks like. So Roman slavery is very different than what we think of when we think of slavery within the U.S. history. Um, it is a piece that is much different in the way that it operated. Um, so one in the Roman Empire, which Ephesus is a part of, you have about one-third of the population would find themselves in a slave class. Um, but slaves did earn wages. They did actually have jobs and opportunities. They were amongst every social class other than the ruling aristocracy. So you could elevate yourself but still become a slave either even voluntarily. And so you could become a slave as prisoner of war voluntarily, sold off as uh, a child or an abandoned child would become a slave, but it was ways that you could go through and purchase your freedom. You'd work for so long, be able to become free. It was a way to elevate yourself in society or even many slaves went on to earn more than their employers. And then the biggest difference between that and American slavery that we think of is there was no racial component. So most slaves, when you would purchase your freedom, you would actually become a Roman citizen, which was a big deal in that society. And so while it was different, I also don't want to gloss over the fact that it was all sunshine and rainbows. The reality is this slave-master relationship was still fraught with cruelty, domineering, and the devaluing of a human, because the human was still valued only upon that of property or a tool to be used by the master. And so largely the slave was very dependent upon whatever his master willed. And because of this, I also want to point out that the Bible is not, when it talks about slavery, is not endorsing it. So we've looked at it in our Old Testament passage this morning, and I realized it felt like a weird Old Testament passage to pick, but trying to give a picture of the fact that slavery is addressed throughout the Bible because it was a part of society. But the way that the Bible addresses it is not an endorsement of it, but it rather it's teaching us how to do it differently. It's teaching people how to live it in a different way. So Hebrew slaves were given a certain time to live, live as a slave, and then they were freed. They had property coming in. They had property going out. Whatever their family was with them, their family went with them. They were given opportunities that were not afforded by those around them. They were treated differently. You were not sold into slavery against your will. Otherwise, it was punishable by death. 
So Hebrews and Old Testament operated differently, and it goes even more so in the New Testament. We come to the point of Paul speaking not only in Ephesus about this relationship, but he talks in other books of the Bible, and we see him speak in Galatians about how under Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free. Christ has made us all one, and we are all equally under him. And he goes on again to speak of it in his letter to Philemon, who is a slave master. He's talking to him and writes this whole letter to him that we have in the New Testament, and he talks to him about how he receiving Onesimus, his runaway slave, back to him. But he says, you're not to receive him back as your slave once again, but to receive him as a brother. He's receive him as an equal. He is one under Christ with you. And so while Paul sees these things and speaks on these relationships, we see that he is not valuing it in the same way that society might have. But we also want him to go further. I think it leaves us in this tension in 2023 of being like, well, why wouldn't he just go further and say to stop slavery? And while there's many reasons for this as well, and I don't have time to touch on all of them, there's two important ones in this letter to Ephesus that I think are valuable to speak on this morning. One being the fact that Paul is interested not in social change, but he's interested in change that comes from the gospel. He's interested in lives and hearts being changed so that a man does not gain the entire world and forfeit his soul. Paul is interested in the soul of the man rather than his society around him. But also in that, the other piece to notice is that Paul's writing a letter. He's writing a letter to a specific church at Ephesus, a specific group of Christians. And so when he addresses these Christians, he wants to address what's going on in their lives. And Christianity at this time is not the religion of the ruling class. It's not the religion of the wealthy. It's not the religion typically of many slave masters and owners. But there's many upon many upon many that are in this that are poor. They're the oppressed. They're the slave. That is what the Christian church looked like. And so Paul's addressing these people that have seen the great gospel change in chapter 4, where you have were darkness, but now you are light. But when you wake up the next morning, you know that you're changed, but you're walking back into another world once again that's filled with and loves darkness. And so he's addressing these people, what do you do? How do you live as light among the darkness? And so that's what we're going to be looking at and pulling out this morning as we go to our own places of employment, as we go through our 9 to 5, our Mondays through Fridays. Because while we are never going to equate our jobs with slavery, we're going to see that there's a piece that all of us wrestle with this tension, that we are changed amongst the gospel, we are made light from darkness, and yet we walk amongst a world that is filled with and loves staying in darkness. And so while we look at this, we're going to see that Paul addresses it in two different ways in our working lives. He's going to talk to us about how when we work and we are employed, we are to work as those working for Christ. And in the same way that as those that when you are at work, if we are employers, we are called to employ people as Christ would employ them. So we are called to work for Christ and like Christ. And so while I understand that's the longest intro to a sermon I have probably ever done, uh, we are going to open God's Word together. So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 5 through 9. Paul says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality in him." This is the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. 
So the first thing to notice is Paul has done the last couple weeks, he's giving dignity to people that may not have been dignified in society. As he speaks about these relationships, he goes and gives slaves the primary purpose in this text. He talks to them first, giving them a place of priority similar to what he did with wives being spoken to before husbands, with children before parents, and now slaves before masters. He's addressing them how the gospel transforms not only our relationship, but who we are as people. And so he says, how you are to live in your work is you are to obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, is how he starts it off with. And this fear and trembling is not a being afraid of them. It's not cowering amongst your pastor or your master, but realizing that Paul has already spoken of and many times over in the Bible, how we fear only God. And so we know that fear and trembling cannot be being afraid of another individual or another person. And so you read on and you read throughout all of Paul's other letters, you realize that this is a phrase that Paul loves to throw out. And this phrase simply means to have deep respect for someone. So going along with, he says, you are to obey your earthly masters with deep respect and with a sincere heart. But the hard thing is that there's no qualifying statement there. There's no qualifier to this obedience and this respect So when we go to work and we're called to obey our bosses, it's not because they earned it. We're not called to obey them only because they deserve it. We're not called to have sincere hearts and to deal with them sincerely because they deserve it. But we're called to do so because as imitators of Christ filled with the Holy Spirit, like we talked about in chapter 5, we're called to live a life of biblical submission. And this life of biblical submission, like we keep talking about, is not one that devalues you as a person. It is not one that means that anyone is more valuable or more worth than the other person, but it simply means that you are willing, as Christ was willing, to put aside what the other person has earned, put aside what they deserve, and sacrifice in order that they might see you love them in the way that Christ loves them. See, Peter says it in a little different way in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, "'Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust.'" For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, I'll admit that passage is kind of hard to hear and it's hard to preach on and speak on because it's talking about how we are to submit in order to experience suffering. We're called to do so. It's our calling and it's our following the example of Christ. And it's hard to hear it because it's not the like classic Kayla of Christianity message that's uplifting and encouraging. Instead, it's this piece that we realize that the reality of the Christian life is one that we are not promised that we won't have to deal with suffering. We're not promised that we're never going to have problems. We're not promised that we're not going to have to put aside our own desires and our own wants. We're not promised when we go to work, we're never going to have an unfair job or a cruel boss. We're not promised that we're not going to be ridiculed or made fun of by our coworkers or those around us. We're not promised that we won't get passed up for the promotion time and time again because we're unwilling to do what others will. But we're called to look at this and to realize that this is our calling to be a Christian. It's our calling to follow Christ, to be a little Christ. And Christ is the one that when he was reviled, he committed no sin. 
Even when he had no deceit in him, the world hated him, and yet he suffered and died for it. And yet like him, when we entrust our futures to the one who judges justly, we know that we are living out what we are supposed to. We know that it is actually a message that Paul and Peter are telling us that they believe is encouraging. They believe it is uplifting because it means that when we see this suffering, when we are acting rightly, we're actually following Christ. We're picking up our cross daily to follow him. Knowing that he as Lord is the one that will rule for all of eternity, that he is the one that will reward us one day when we will be able to look and to claim with Paul that our present sufferings pale in comparison with the future glory that is to come, that there are rewards for following Christ. And to be clear, this does not mean that we choose to remain in suffering. And I want to be clear about that, that Paul is not saying that you have to remain in suffering simply because it's better to suffer. See, Paul's speaking to a slave class that had no option but to go back to where they were. They had no option to get out of this suffering until they could purchase their freedom. But he was very clear in many places throughout the Bible that when you could, you should purchase your freedom. And so when we look at it this morning in our context, if you are in an abusive or oppressive relationship or an abusive or oppressive situation, God is not calling you to remain in it simply because Christ suffered. God is calling you, if you have the means to get out of it, then he, you should know that he is with you in it. That by, if you think through and have the opportunity to get out, then you should do so prayerfully and with confidence that he is walking with you and he is the means by which you are able to get out of that situation. But I think for many of us, we are not feeling oppressed at work. We don't experience these same conditions of a slave and his master when we go through our nine to five. But we still have these little bits of suffering. We still have these things that continue to aggravate us and to drive us nuts because they are unfair. And that doesn't mean that our suffering doesn't exist because it's not as great as these people. But the reality is all of our suffering is valid. And all of our suffering is something that we look at and understand that it's not fun when our boss ridicules us. We don't enjoy it when we're made fun of at work. And yet, how do we respond? We're just called to respond like Christ. We don't revile in return. We don't come back at our boss with a harsh word. We don't gossip about our coworkers behind their backs. We aren't willing to step on everyone else in order to get ahead. We're called to submit to our employers and to give them the respect of their position because ultimately they're not the ones in charge. Because as Christians, we're able to look above them and to know that the CEO is not the CEO of our lives. We're able to look to the one that is in charge of all of this earth and to know that our God is sovereign. And so really, when we look at these things, we understand that our boss is not the one that is ruling over us that has called us to submit to this position, but it's Jesus Christ himself. Because when God is sovereign, we understand that our boss didn't put us in that job. Our company didn't transfer us to that position. The federal government didn't relocate us to Puerto Rico. But God ultimately is the one that is in charge of all of these situations. God ultimately is the one that has put us as his people, as his lights in a dark world, in the place where we are this morning, in the place where we are when we go to work. He's the one that put us amongst those coworkers, amongst that boss, so that we might love them in the way that Christ loves them, in the way that displays that we're working not for them, but as for Christ. We can submit to our bosses knowing that we're actually submitting to God. And when we see Christ as our boss, it should not only transform our attitudes, but our work ethic. You see, if you look at verse 6, he says, We work not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. And so the question is, do we work the same way if my boss is looking over my shoulder as I do when I'm working from home? Do I give the same amount of effort when I know someone's paying attention? 
You see, I was thinking this week because this text was interesting to come to and study this week when I was coming off a week of being very frustrated with some people that were working on my roof last week because they continued to take way longer than it should have by their own company's admission. I continued to look out my window and they weren't looking and see two of the four on their phone instead of doing any work. Lunch breaks got longer. They showed up later each morning and left earlier each day. And I was visibly frustrated about this. And then I thought about this passage and I thought about the amount of times that I have slacked off at work. And I'm not talking about this job because my boss is right here. <laughs> but in other jobs that I've had in the past, I don't always work with 100% effort. I think of when I played soccer, and I played soccer in Puerto Rico, and I still had to sit out in the sun the same as these workers, and it was hot, and I took plays off. My coach wasn't paying attention, so I didn't work as hard. I didn't go to voluntary workouts or other events because I wasn't being paid any extra. It wasn't worth my time, and I was able to justify my laziness. And we're all able to do this when we're at our job. We justify our own laziness, but then I thought about this passage this week and realized that if I'm working for Christ as my boss, he still saw me. He still saw all of this, and he probably had the same frustration and disdain for my laziness as I had for the workers last week. Because the reality is, when I am lazy and I'm not working with my best ability, I'm showing a disdain for the fact that he is the one that has given me these gifts, these abilities, and this opportunity to work. I'm showing that I don't value what God has done for me, what he has blessed me with, and my ability to work. And it's something that he has given me the opportunity to work in so many ways, and it's something that goes outside of our nine to five. You see, Colossians 3, Paul says this way, whatever you do, work at it with your whole being for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do. So it's not relegated to when I go to the office or when I come home. It's something where I'm sitting at home if I'm making dinner tonight. Am I making it in the same way that I would if I believed that Christ was going to walk through that door and sit with me? If uh, kids in here, when your parents tell you to do your chores, would you do your chores the same way, taking the trash out, if you believed Christ was the one that was going to come check it later? Would you clean the bathroom in the same way if you knew he was the next one walking in there to use it, not you? The reality is, whatever we do, we're called to do it with 100% effort because it's God that has given us the opportunity to do it. It reflects an attitude of gratitude when we work hard at it because it shows that we are thankful for the grace of God because he is the one that has graciously given us a house to clean, food to eat, and a job to work at. He's the one that has given us this opportunity, and he's the one that's put us in this place. He's the one that has put us exactly where we are because he is Lord of our lives. When we confess that we, Jesus is Lord when we become Christians, we're confessing that he's Lord over everything. He's Lord over our time. He's Lord over our family. He's Lord over my desires. He's Lord over what I do at work. And so when I'm working, he is my master. He is my boss. He is the one in charge, and I, my work should reflect that as I'm being an imitator of God, filled by the Holy Spirit, living as light among darkness. And when we see this, that we're working not just for Christ, but Paul doesn't ignore the masters. Though they're in the minority, he also goes on to speak to them, because while they're called to still work in the same way, working for Christ, they're also called to work and to employ and treat others like Christ would treat them. You see, verse 9, he goes on to say, he says, Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So first Paul tells them to stop threatening their slaves. We're called to stop threatening our workers, stop threatening those that are our subordinates. You see, in Ephesus, it was commonplace to command authority through domineering and through punishment, through physical violence. 
And we're not all, while we are immune to the physical violent part in our lives, we're not immune to threatening at our own workplaces and using harsh words. I think there's how often we think of things of like, hey, I need you to do this or else. Hey, I need you to get that done. And we use it in a term where it might be the tone of our voice, it might be a veiled threat, but we all know what's implied. We're implying that there is consequence and I need you to get it done and I'm going to command that over you. And while we're being clear that this is not our putting away threatening and our threatening tones does not mean we get walked all over by our employees. The Bible is firmly rooted in the fact that we're all called to work. Working is good and we're to work to the best of our abilities. We're rewarded based on what we do. Paul says it in Thessalonians that if you do not work, you do not eat. So we know that we are called to work hard and we're to command others to work for us, that those who are lazy are not excused in the same way that a son that is disobedient is not excused from punishment. And yet Paul can go on to talk to a father and a son last week in the same way he talks to a boss and his employee this week. That as bosses or as fathers are not to provoke their children, bosses are not to threaten unnecessarily. You're not to use harshness when there's no harshness needed. You're not to be the one that is belittling your employees, reminding them who's in charge. You're not the one that is to be embarrassing them in front of others. You're not to be the one that is making a point just to make the point. They don't need you to remind them who's in charge. They don't need you to remind them who owns their paycheck and who is the boss time and time again. We have to remember that God is the one that has placed us in authority. And so we are called to submit and to do and act the way that Christ would if he was our boss. And while it's not just putting away the harshness and putting away the threatening, it gets even more challenging when you read that first phrase that, we, that you kind of skip over a little bit. When it says, do the same to them. You see, Paul is actually quoting what we refer to as the golden rule, to do unto others as you would have them do to you. If you want your employees to show you respect, then you should probably respect them first. If you want them to listen to you, how often do you make yourself available to hear their ideas and their thoughts? And I know for some, this might feel like, hey, this is great for some workplaces, but my workplace operates differently. I'm in an environment or I'm in a job that things go differently in my job because it's so much different than what you have. It's so much different than all these other employment places. And if you're tempted to think that, the reality is you've got to look at who Paul's talking to. Paul's talking to slaves and masters. He's talking to a society where, yeah, it didn't make sense to treat a slave with respect because a slave was a tool and a piece of property. And yet Paul goes on to say that you are to treat them with the same respect and the same value that you have as a wealthy individual. You see, there's none of us that are excused from treating others in the way that we would have them treat us. We are to respect those beneath us, those put in places underneath us or in our employment. We're to respect our subordinates because they are people too. They're not just positions. They're not just the guy that gets this done for you, but it is an actual individual doing it. And it goes beyond just our workplaces. It goes into every area of our life. If you're like me, you might live in an urbanization, and so you've got the person at the gate. Do you know their name? Maybe you've got the people that take out your trash. Do you know who they are? Do you know your mailman? Do you know your Amazon delivery worker? Or like me, do you time and time again refer to them as the gate lady, the trash guy, the mailman? I don't know their name, and I don't know them as an individual more than I know what they do for me, how they operate in a way that makes my life easier and better. And while I might not employ them directly, they're doing things that serve me, and I'm treating them as if they are not people. They're simply providing a function or being a tool. 
And yet in the same way, I don't want everyone to walk around here calling me pastoral intern because I am a person with a name and I am a person with a story. And yet when we communicate this way to our employees, we communicate that they don't matter as anything more than what they do for us. But what would it look like if all of us knew the name of the gate person? What would it communicate to our neighbors if we knew the trash guy's name and his story? What would it communicate if we took time out of our day to spend time with the mailman and to get to know him or the people that are under our employment? What would it look like in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and on this island if we showed that we were willing to take time to sacrifice in order to understand them as people? What would it look like is it would look like Christ because Christ being God felt it valuable to come to earth, to come to us, to submit to being a person. But not only that, he was willing to walk around and to talk to and spend time with the outcast, the leper, and the prostitute. He was willing to treat them like human beings even when society would not. To treat others under us like Christ is to treat them in a way that is not easy. It takes your time. It takes investment. It's not going to be easy for our day-to-day life. It might look different. It might be that you're not looking the way that your company wants you to look. It might not be acting in the way that you've seen time and time again at your place of employment. It might be operating in a way that people feel odd about it because it's different. But it shows an understanding that we have one boss in this universe, and it is not our CEO. It is not ourselves. It is not anyone around us, but it is ultimately God, the Father of all. He is the ultimate CEO, and as Paul says, there's no partiality in him. He's an equal opportunity employer with no favoritism. And we should be those that operate without favoritism as well. We are called to be those that live and love as Christ has loved. We're called to be imitators of God, living as light in darkness. And so ultimately, we're called to be set apart from the rest of the world. We're called to live in a way that is different. We're called to be imitators in every facet of our lives, and that includes when we're at work. Paul wants us to realize this morning that our work matters and how we work matters. And while we are never going to live this out perfectly, it is also our awareness of this that should drive us back once and once again to being able to need our fill of the Holy Spirit. To remind ourselves time and time again that we look to God's Word and remind ourselves that He doesn't leave us or forsake us. That we have the indwelling of Christ's Holy Spirit with us when we're on our way to work. That we can sit in prayer asking to be filled once again when we're at our lunch break. That when we're leaving work and we're exhausted, we can ask for the Lord to be providing us that opportunity to be able to come back and serve in our neighborhoods to treat people with respect, to come home and see our families and treat them with respect, to submit and to die to ourselves time and time again as an imitator of the one who died for us. You see, the reality is that we are all called to live like Christ. And to live like Christ is only possible because Christ has given us the opportunity to live as his children, the children of the Most High God. We are children of the one who's the Lord of the universe, even when we didn't deserve it. And we, even when others don't deserve it, we are called to submit to them because we're operating under different rules. We're operating under the rules of God's word rather than the rules of our workplaces. We're living to see Christ made known in our workplaces, both to our bosses and to our subordinates. We're called to live and work as those that work like Christ and for Christ and for him alone. And it is only when we do such things that we're able to live and to shine like lights in places that are filled with darkness. Because ultimately we're shining the light of Christ who is the light that shines in the darkness and no darkness can overcome it. So when we think about this next week, how can you pray for Christ to fill you more? 
How can you pray before you go to work? How can you pray when you're at work that you might treat that person differently, that you might treat your employer with respect out of obedience for God and for God alone? And how can you treat those who work for you as Christ would treat them? Understanding that we're not doing it for ourselves, we're not doing it for our work, we're not doing it for our society, but we're only doing it for the God in heaven who shows no partiality and who is ultimately Lord of our lives and our Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can come to your word um, and that it is applicable. We thank you for Paul's treatment of your gospel and how he seeks to make it known of how this applies to everyday life. Um, God, we thank you that it is just given examples of our marriages and our kids and how we operate with those at our workplaces. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity to come and to know one another in a way that we can be encouraged um, by your word, to be encouraged by your spirit in this place, that we can worship you as the God and Lord of the universe, the one who is above all, and Lord, that we could be your people that would reflect you in our workplaces. That when we go to these places that might look and feel and filled with darkness, that we would be the lights that are reflections of you. That we would be little Christ and little as Christians, as your people, as ambassadors in this world. And that we would be living in such a way that it would reflect that to all who we come in contact with. God, we pray for the empowerment of your spirit because without it, we know that this is impossible. And Lord, we just ask to be filled once again with your word and your will. In your holy name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen.